Well, good morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you're listening. Welcome to the Five Day Reading Plan podcast. I'm Lance Ward, as you probably know, and I will be walking us through some of the highlights of what we read this week. And don't forget, you can download a copy of this reading plan in the description of this podcast. You can also find it at fivedaybiblereading.com. Well, this week was week 43. We're just a few weeks away from the end of the year, and we read Ezekiel 1 through 15, Psalms 82, 83, and 136, and we got into the Gospel of John. Now, John's writings we're going to read now. We're going to finish the year in his writings. We're going to read John, then 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, then Revelation. So we started in the Gospel of John this week, chapters 1 through 5. Ezekiel begins, like most other prophets, revealing to us the timing of his writing. He writes, it was the fifth year of Jehoiakim's exile, which we see in 2 Kings 24 and 25, and in also 2 Chronicles 36, we know that God's people have now been deported by Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Ezekiel is reminded that his success will not be determined by the people's response, but by obedience to the Lord, just like Jeremiah. This seems to be a common rule of thumb for the prophets and for any of us who minister to others, whether vocationally or as volunteers. It was also the template for Jesus' ministry. He never let himself be governed by what the people wanted, but by the Father's direction. In Ezekiel 3.16 and following, we were reminded that Ezekiel's role was not to change hearts, but to warn the people. He was a messenger. His place was simply to repeat God's words. And you know what? The same is true for us, isn't it, in the sharing of the gospel. We're not charged to change people's minds or hearts, but we are charged to get out the good news. The main thing you've probably seen, actually, you probably won't start seeing this or didn't start seeing this till chapter 5, is you're going to see this repeated phrase over and over and over again in Ezekiel. They will know that I am the Lord. So if you haven't already started highlighting that phrase, it starts somewhere in chapter 5, and it's in every chapter of the book to the end, I believe. Just highlight that phrase. I also notice, and we've seen this before in the prophets, in Ezekiel 8.18 and 9.8-10, both of these passages seem to indicate a point of no return for some people. And that sparks a question to me. Can we get to a point where God will say to us, no more? It's a scary thought, but it is one that shows up occasionally in the prophets. In all of this, though, there is the promise of restoration one day in chapter 11, verses 14 through 21, among other passages. And again, in this, we see God's unreasonable kindness. This is quite common also in the prophets. Lots of warnings and rebukes, and yet promises of undeserved future hope for some. While the Lord may be angry and disappointed in the hard hearts of his people, he simply refuses to go back on his original promises. Hope will continue to be part of his eternal plan. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and in verse 17, God speaks of prophets who, quote, follow their own spirit, unquote. Today, this might look like a person who lives by his or her own truth. We hear that a lot, don't we? And God's response in Ezekiel is not good for you, but I'm against you if you're going to live by what you think is right rather than what I say is right. And this speaks to an impression I got in chapters 13 through 15 together, and it's this, 
You might, you might remember Romans 8 where it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Sometimes in the prophets, I hear the same message, but reversed. If God is against us, who can be for us? In Psalm 82, 3 and 4, we see a common Old Testament theme and mark of those who are against the Lord. You usually see in these kinds of people oppression and neglect of the weak, the poor, and the orphans. The psalmist's assurance, though, in this psalm is that injustice will one day end at the hands of a good and sovereign God. He is not sleeping, nor is he apathetic. He is just waiting. Justice will come. In Psalm 83, 18, I saw that a cry much like the repeated thought in Ezekiel, a cry that says, May they know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. It's kind of like what we have seen in Ezekiel, that they will know that I am the Lord. And, and then Psalm 136. The theme of Psalm 136 is obvious. It is repeated over and over again. His steadfast love endures forever. And one thing you may have noticed, like I have, is all the proofs of this claim in this psalm. And you'll notice that the proofs of his steadfast love are not rooted in syrupy emotional expressions like some kind of adolescent puppy love, but they are instead grounded in testimonies of God's greatness. He is the creator. He is Lord over all. He is the rescuer of the helpless. He is our warrior and defender. He's a promise keeper. He is an endless provider. In other words, God proves his love not by mere emotional feelings, but by way of his greatness, his holiness, his, as some people call it, his otherness. There is something reassuring about being loved by a mighty, not needy God, isn't there? Well, in our New Testament, uh, we started in the Gospel of John. I love the Gospel of John. I'm sure many of you do too. Uh, Probably if we were to tally up all the gospel messages we've heard or Sunday school lessons we've heard, a lot of them would come out of this gospel. And you, you probably know this, but John is different compared to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Many of his stories we read will be unique to his gospel. His angle on things is also a bit different. And this is one of the benefits of having four gospels. We have different yet complementary angles of Jesus and his ministry on earth. Unlike a couple of the other Gospels, John doesn't begin with Jesus' birth, nor with even the advent of his ministry, but he begins in eternity past. As Genesis 1-1 says, so John begins in the beginning. So John begins by pulling back the curtain on what took place long before Joseph and Mary journeyed to Bethlehem. And his opening claims in these first four verses especially is the Son of God, or are, John's opening claims are, the Son of God is eternal. He had no beginning. He had no end. He created everything. Before he came in the form of a baby, he ruled the universe. It's like Revelation, which John also wrote, that would claim that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And chapter 1, 1 through 18 is sort of a synopsis of most of what John will write about, a preview, in a sense, of this gospel, and it is packed with great stuff. I think you, if you were doing a sermon series, if you were a preacher, you could do a long series just on these first 18 verses alone. And right there in the middle, not the exact middle, but in verse 14, we see this wonderful, memorable phrase, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
This word, whom existed from eternity past, came into our little world at, at a point in time, and the divine took on humanity. He became one of us. We see, too, just a few verses later, the first time John the Baptist sees Jesus as an adult, he exclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. The Old Testament sacrifices covered sin, but here is the one who will remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. I'm a big fan of John 2, 23 through 25. You might read them again, but just a summary of those two verses, we see that Jesus does not get his identity nor his marching orders from what people will think about him. He knew that human beings were fickle. What an important lesson for us as well. One of the things I consider when I read this is how much my motives and my actions often spring from what others might think. Jesus never had this problem. Thank God we have a perfect Savior driven by a perfect Father, not imperfect, indecisive, insecure humans. From the beginning of John, there are unique gospel stories in almost every chapter that are not seen in any of the other gospels, like the calling of Nathaniel in chapter 1, the wedding at Cana, his meeting with Nicodemus, his meeting with the woman at the well, and his meeting with the lame man by the pool. And speaking of those characters, I want to focus specifically on Nicodemus and the woman at the well, because chapters 3 and 4 are extended conversations, perhaps some of the longest conversations of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Each one of these conversations with Nicodemus and then with the woman at the well, each is an extended and personal conversation, and neither, of course, is found in any of the other Gospels. Each conversation centers around eternal life, yet using different word pictures. With Nicodemus, he uses a word picture of rebirth. With the woman at the well, he uses the word picture of living water. Nicodemus, on the one hand, is an insider, but the woman is an outsider, and the fact that she is unnamed further emphasizes this. And in each conversation, Jesus takes their thoughts and takes an abrupt turn into what he wants to talk about. If you've noticed in Nicodemus chapter 3, verse 3, and then with the woman at the well, chapter 4, verse 16. With Nicodemus, one thing comes across from Jesus, and that is, you don't get into God's kingdom by dying, but by possessing life. We often think otherwise. We think, well, someone is in heaven because they died. Well, that's one reason why they're not here, but why they're in heaven, if they are, is because they have eternal life given in Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 19 is also an interesting verse, and it answers the question, why do people ultimately reject Jesus? It says they love darkness rather than light. And, you know, sometimes we hear, if only you Christians would, would be nicer or this or that, then, then maybe more people would listen. And there may be some validity to such complaints about us. There are definitely times where I know I should be more or should have been more loving and more gracious. John 3.19 tells us why ultimately people reject Jesus. It's not the messengers, but it is a love for something else, darkness. Jesus is a light that exposes the truth we may try to hide. When exposed, we can either run away and still have the same problem, or run to him and let his exposure of our sin transform us into people more like him, people who love light rather than darkness. My own story is much like this. I grew up going to church. I knew the gospel. Uh, and in college, I loved darkness. I enjoyed a life that 
didn't want to have any Jesus in it. I knew what was right. I knew the gospel, but I simply loved darkness more than I loved light. Then Jesus did something through a certain event and through some certain people, and he showed me the beauty of his light. And so now I love light more than I love darkness, only because of what he did. With the woman at the well, we see that like Nicodemus, Jesus talks about life, but he uses different imagery, just as I mentioned earlier, not a second birth, but living water. And there is one piece of great irony I've spotted in this account on this go-round that I've read this account numerous times. And you may remember that in chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus says to the woman, go and call your husband, which arouses some shame and some, her wanting to hide some things most likely. But in the end, it's interesting that when she goes back to the town, she doesn't call her husband. She calls the entire town. She goes back and wants to tell everyone about Jesus, saying, this man has told me everything I've ever done. The light of Jesus has exposed her, but the light of Jesus has also loved her, and she wants to go tell everyone. And so this outcast, who likely had no voice because of prior shame, becomes the first evangelist in this gospel account. And that's the power of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus can turn the most despised and downtrodden people into courageous and unstoppable evangelists. The final story I want to look at is the man by the pool in John 5. The conversation Jesus has here is not near as long, but it is quite personal. It's also more public than the other two conversations, and a miracle is performed out in the open. So at this point, Jesus has personally interacted with an insider, an outcast, and a needy, hopeless man reminding us that his salvation is available to everyone, whether we have it all together or whether we're limping through life. Everyone needs a Savior, and Jesus is adequate to save every kind of human being there is. In light of that, maybe we should close out this session thanking God for the life we have received in Christ. It was undeserved. We never could have come up with this solution, no matter how hard we may have tried, no matter how smart we might have been. Some of us might have been an insider like Nicodemus, or maybe we were an outsider like the woman at the well. We might be very healthy, or we might have been very healthy before Christ. We might have been needy and hopeless like the man by the pool. But whatever the case, whomever we might be, eternal life from Jesus Christ has been given to us as a gift. It's available to whosoever, John three sixteen. It is given to us from above by grace, not by anything we can do to earn it, as John writes in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. So maybe before your day ends, maybe just get on your knees and thank God for his marvelous, undeserved gift of grace in Christ. Next week, we'll pick up John some more. We'll read John 6 through 10. We'll also look at Ezekiel 16 through 30. Psalms 84, 85, and 134. So we'll talk to you again next week. Hope you have a great week until then. Thanks for listening.